0: I'm Rachel Moore, and I'm the president and CEO of The Music Center in Los Angeles. Thank you for joining us for our podcast series, Offstage and Unbound. In this episode, we'll speak to acclaimed artistic director and former principal dancer of American Ballet Theater, Kevin McKenzie. The Music Center is excited to bring the Russian classic La Bayadere to our beautiful Dorothy Chandler Pavilion from July 13th to 15th. La Bayadere is set in Royal India and tells the story of eternal love, fate vengeance and justice. The ballet features the kingdom of the shades, one of the most celebrated excerpts in the ballet world. Full disclosure, I was a dancer with this wonderful company and danced in the court de ballet in this very ballet. I'm extremely excited that this ballet is coming to Los Angeles. Kevin, welcome to Los Angeles and to Offstage and Unbound, and thank you so much for joining us.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So, um, we thought it'd be fun to start with your journey. How did a little boy from Vermont end up as the artistic director of American Ballet Theater? I
1: keep asking myself that question. (laughs) I had a little bit of the Billy Elliot story. Ballet kind of found me. Um, I had a a friend when I was all of seven years old who... uh, had taken some tap dance lessons and was trying to convince me to come and join him because he was having fun. And my father overheard us talking and he he, he encouraged me to go. He said, you know, who knows? You may end up being the next Fred Astaire. Go do it, you know. And um, it was a place, it was a, you know, it was a, a little suburban studio in a basement uh, and they taught acrobatics and tap dance and ballet and you name it, they taught it. Um, and my sister wanted to take ballet class. Well, long story short, my father wanted to see what I knew after a few lessons. And he said, well, you're pretty uncoordinated. Um, why don't you go take some ballet lessons with your sister? And I really didn't want to do it because I just couldn't. I, basically, I, did, I, I couldn't picture putting on tights and walking into a room full of girls at seven years old. I just yes. couldn't do it. Um, so my parents offered to have private lessons uh, th- they said three lessons. Do do three lessons, and then if you don't like it, you don't have to do it. And th- that was it. The next thing I knew, I was director of ABT. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Boy, you were pretty young director. <laughs>
1: No, but, I mean, I it, the, the the movement to the music, all of it just spoke to me so much. But by the time I was 12, I had dropped the basketball team. I had dropped the acrobatics team. I had dropped the tap dance lessons. I had dropped, you know, everything was focusing down to that. And, again, like the Billy Elliot story, but you know, like the teacher went to my parents and said, I think you should send him somewhere, or, or both my sister and I, uh, for some real professional training. And, uh, you know, just luck followed us every step of the way. We ended up with this... Uh, going away at 12 and 13 years old to a boarding school in Washington called the Washington School of ballet in, in DC with a genius teacher you know a, a, a you know the matriarch of bringing ballet to Washington and she had an amazing eye and an amazing view on education uh, it wasn't just about teaching us to dance it was about teaching us the history of and the culture of the art form insisting that academics were were um, Kept at a certain level and had a relation to a life in the theater. I mean, the education was amazing. And so by the time I was 18, I I was just about as well educated as most of my siblings who'd gone to college, really. I mean, in terms of history and language and the liberal arts. Um, uh, Yeah. And then I I danced professionally. Right out of school, I went to the Joffrey Ballet. I'm sorry, to uh, the National Ballet in Washington. And uh, that company closed after two years, and then I went to moved to New York. Finally, went to Joffrey, and in seventy nine joined ABT, and I was Lucia Chase's last promotion, and danced there for twelve years as principal dancer, uh, and then went back to Washington, uh, back to Mary Day, uh, who at this point was in her very late eighties, and I had great high dreams of being a you know uh, Ratmansky, basically. I, I I wanted to be a choreographer. And, um, and there was this small company with, and Mary kind of willing to tutor me on, on how to be a director and run a company, if you will. So I got a little bit of practice, but not quite enough when Ballet Theatre called and said, <laughs> you want to come here and help us with this? And um, yeah, that's sort of how I got from Vermont. To this chair, I, and I must say, at the time I came to ballet theater, it was it, it was in rather dire straits. It was in bad financial disarray, and um, I, I again, fortune just smiled on me because everybody needed me to succeed. Frankly, I think I got the job because no one in their right mind wanted to take it. They didn't want to <laughs> preside over the downfall of a major, you know, institution, and. Uh, so as, as I had been convinced, I had no reputation as a manager. I had nothing to lose in that regard. So I had nothing to lose by trying. And everybody needed me to succeed, and they everybody just pulled it together and overlooked a few bad choices in the first couple of years, and, and, and I basically learned on the job. And I think that culture of pulling together in bad times mm-hmm. is um, a signature of the culture at ABT. Mm-hmm. Everybody... Kind of needs to have everybody else's back. Uh, thank God through the years I've had terrific partners, yourself included, <laughs> Rachel. For you were
0: tw- 12, twelve years, years year. yeah. yeah,
1: which I think is the record
0: yes. for an executive director yes. at ABT. Yeah, so and yeah, and- I'm a glutton for <laughs> punishment. <propunition.
1: laughs> <laughs> so, but you know, so, so through the years, you know, we've just have steadily put one foot in front of the other. Sometimes more easily, sometimes much more difficult, uh, yeah. but. Um, It has progressed and and has grown up really to, I think, own its title Mm -hmm. of America's National Ballet Company.
0: When you talk to dancers, they have a a view of what an artistic director does, which has seemingly no bearing on the actual job. Mm -hmm. (laughs) How would you describe your job and what are the misconceptions you think that – people have about
1: what you do? I I think that the biggest misconception is that the artistic director can do anything he wants. Um, uh, That uh, somehow it's an all-powerful dictatorship and, uh, you know, I sit behind a desk and say, make it so, and people scramble to make it so. Um, I think really the, the real job is, I think, defined by each individual that holds the position. There are different kinds of artistic directors, but I, I am uh, uh, and always have been felt that I had it had to be attached to the artists in the studio, in some way, shape, or form. Either by being the coach, or, or you know, I wanted to choreograph, but frankly, I wasn't a good enough choreographer by the time I became ABT's director. So I had the instinct to not. Expose myself that way. So I then made a point to keep myself in the studio to the one thing that I did have to artistically pass on was I had worked with Tudor and I had worked with Macmillan and I had, you know, so I said, you know, I want to teach the next generations when they do the big roles. I want to teach them what I learned from them and, and get it taught and then turn it over to the staff and coaches to let them make it their own. The artists make it their own. So that kept me in the studio and in touch with the, the dancers and, and, and whatnot. But, you know, uh, there's more than just being a teacher and a coach. You have, One has to have generate a long-range vision of where you want the company to go. And what is the mission of the company? Clarify it. Um, and we are the nation's ballet company. And I think it's important that we uphold the classics and the highest standard that we view honestly, as best as we know them to be in the original. Like, for instance, we're doing La Bayadere. Mm-hmm. This is Natalia Makarova's production. It's an iconic work. It's 38. We have been doing it for 38 years. So there's a responsibility to uh, be true to her vision of what it was. Her reconstruction uh, is very true to Petipa, but there are parts of it that she had to You know, that were lost, if you will. Or at the time, there wasn't access to notes like there are today. She made a very, very unique, and in my view, the best version I've ever seen of it. I may be prejudiced, but, you know, I view that I have to personally and through my staff uphold that these works are, are, are... not dogmatically recreated. They, they have to be relevant to the times in which in which artists are, are, are portraying the roles, but they have to be kept alive and true to form. I always say the thing about the classics is they're called classics for a reason. If you do Hamlet, you have to say the words, to be or not to be. You can't change the words. You can change your interpretation and your sensitivity um, and your... Uh, what not So it's it's being a guardian of that era mm-hmm. e- Element And then uh, looking for Where is the art form going to be mm-hmm. uh, 50 years from now uh, What's the threshold for Taking an audience that If you do the classics all the time You end up with a very conservative audience mm-hmm. uh, Anything that does one thing Becomes stagnant And it has to push the boundaries of What do you call this art form What you know, How does it engage people And why does it engage people It's you know the thing about dance and classical dance, um, which can be intimidating to so many people. But if you think about it, dance is is simply a form of body language. And many people go, "Oh, I don't understand it," and I, you know, I don't know how to talk about it, and you know, they get uncomfortable. Uh, but ballet is just a very highly codified system of body language. So if you really open yourself to the experience, you can understand what's going on um, if it's performed well. Mm-hmm. Modern-day audiences, I think, tend to relate a little more to contemporary work than classical work. So, therefore, it's important we open the gates to a new generation to get them out of their screens and into a theater and get used to that culture and and understand the magic. The thing that's so magical about dance is the dancer's body is their instrument. You know, music can make—can lift your soul— but the instrument is something else. It's a cello. It's a piano. It's a the magic that happens through dance is is in some way connected to the divine. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's got a sense of creation. It's got a sense of it's a human achievement of excellence, um, because it's it's related to physicality. You know, it's it's both. You know, uh, on the ground and in the heavens at the same time. Uh, so it exists in a very special place in. In an audience and a human being's mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. sensitivity. So what I do is I, I look to balance the repertoire so that there is a fair amount of looking forward, uh, like a two-thirds of upholding the classics as a standard of measure, and then a little bit of l- really putting our resources, not necessarily to production, but to identifying who is the next really inventive creator.
0: There's also, um, you function as a manager. I mean, you manage the careers of 90 dancers from, you know, and also watching the kids from the school come up. So there's a lot of, you know, not just being in the classroom, but you, there's an arc of a career as well that you need to manage with an individual dancer. You
1: know, that just really rang home to me recently. Um, uh, I was watching, our, we just closed an eight-week season at the Metropolitan Opera House, and I saw about six or seven performances during the course of that run. And they, interestingly, they were all sort of close together. Um, a sort of momentum had happened. And dancers of two different generations delivered performances that were of such a level that I thought, oh, my God, I think they might be—this uh, uh, is as good as my heroes that inspired me. Um and then I realized, and I've known each of them since they were, like, 15 years old. <laughs> it w- and it was intimidating, yeah, you know? Yeah, it w- yeah. Gratifying, yeah. but surprising. Um, and I think that, um, you know, there is a myth uh, in a funny way. Uh, I often quote you, Rachel, as saying, you know, if you, if you want to have a really good employee, hire a former dancer. You know, they, they, it's an art form that has to be practiced communally. It inherently teaches respect for individuals, respect for the team, respect for deadlines. You know, it's it's a very unique situation. But there is sort of a, a negative myth of that oh, the career's so short and so hard. It's like hmm, you know, I would have done it if somebody hadn't paid me. I mean, there's a passion behind doing it. That is, you get to do. What you absolutely love to do, but you can't do it until you're 80. You know, so mid mid you have to change careers, but you are equipped. You know, you, you can't know it while you're dancing, but afterwards you realize, wow, I've I've learned a lot about life um, and about how to deal with people, and I think that that served me well as a director. So, you know, there's also the myth that every company says is, oh, we're a family, and that is true because. You watch kids grow up and have their first loves and their first disappointments and their first, you know, tragedies and their first, you know, successes, um, and watch them develop into the artist that they're going to be because they're becoming the people that they are. Um, and I realize as a director, one has the the power to influence them, mm-hmm. if you will. I try to indoctrinate them with that saying: "Energy begets energy." You mm-hmm. have to remember that. You know if. If the voice isn't supportive, you don't have to listen to it, but you do have to be realistic. Um, And it's just a lot easier to have a positive outlook than it is to have a negative one. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, disappointment can be crippling, Mm -hmm. but look at your older, you know, look at the ones in the generation above you and how they work. You know, they're they're not 20, so they're not just driven by their hormones and and opinions. You know, they're (laughs) they're driven by by experience and knowing how to control their energy. Um, And that's what makes an artist, is that you can control your energy on command.
0: You know, um, artists have to find their own voice. And not every voice... And skill set is appropriate for an American ballet theater or... or and you have this great story of Mary Day speaking mm, with yes. someone who turned out okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I remember her saying early on when, when she knew that I was going to be doing... She didn't know what I was going to be doing, but she knew that I was going to be doing something in the ballet field. And she said, you know, it's really important when you start to teach younger people that you teach the whole child. And you recognize that... Although, you know, the, the, a, ballet is a cruel mistress. Um, as I said, your body is your instrument. And the one thing that kind of you can't get around are proportions. You know, I, I mean, a cello is a certain shape to make a certain sound. A body needs a certain proportion to make a certain line. And, and I'm not talking about weight. I'm right. just talking about proportion of body. You know, like right. a Da Vinci man, you know, mm-hmm. proportion, classical proportion. So, you know, there's a lot of little girls who study and they're not going to be in a ballet company. A ballet class is probably one of the best bases for keeping one in tune with one's body, in tune with one's musicality, in tune with discipline, um, and can be a base for many things and she had she said and so she said it's so important to not ignore the ones who aren't going to be in a ballet company or be the swan queen and she said you know I had one girl who was just so full of it she was so talented and she's you know I just liked her so much but it was such a heartache because she was just never going to be in a ballet company so I had to pull her aside and say now listen here you know you you you're just never going to be a swan queen you have to understand that now you can't get your hopes up you're not going to have a career in a ballet company but you have to keep studying because you are going to be a great performer and i don't know how and what but this is going to be this is going to lead you to it and that little girl was Shirley MacLaine so you know
0: you need to figure out how you're going to use your voice and it can be expressed in lots of different ways and i think also as one changes from a dancer into the second career the voice is still there. The impetus to want to say something special. It's just how it's expressed changes, right?
1: Exactly. It's really just a matter of language. It's like learning another language. You can be very poetic in the French language. You can be very poetic in the English language. You can, you know that's how the genres of performing, I think, should be viewed.
0: so when you're we have a lot of uh, listeners who are young performers, when you go into an audition, What do you look for? You know, what do you want to see?
1: You know, basically the first and most important thing is a response to music. How does it, you know, uh, ballet can be very technical. Um, And there is a point where you have to really get scientific and, you know, figure out how the body works and how muscles are going to be strong. But in the end, it's dancing. So if one doesn't respond to an emotional Thing like music or the feeling of movement and how that makes you feel I mean how many you know if you could just picture it if you stand on two feet and start to sway and then you start to relax your body and sway and feel a swing you your emotions change it changes your outlook and if you can't respond to that you're not a dancer (laughs) yeah so that's the first and most important and then the next is of course proportion but it's not it's not a game-changer to study but you do keep an eye out for it. And the next is a sense of um, being able to uh, have a sense of spatial awareness around you, uh, how movement relates in space, because ballet takes place not just as a solo in a huge stage, but many times in a of ballet where there's somebody standing seven inches away from you. And then basically, how do they, how quickly do they pick up things, how quickly can they absorb the information and turn it back to you?
0: So I want to go back to talk a little bit more about Labiat Air. We are so happy that ABT is here doing one of my absolute favorites. Full lengths. And, you know, I talk about the, um, it's one of these great ballets with, you know, love and betrayal and death and destruction. And, you know, it's not quite the Game of Thrones, but almost. <laughs> <laughs> when was the first time you saw Bayadere?
1: Do You know, I was at Ballet Theatre when it was being created. Oh, wow. My first year in the company, uh, Natalia Makarova was creating it using Anthony Dow as her partner and advisor on parts of it. I had the foresight to go, no fool I, I asked if can I just sit in the corner and be very quiet and watched it evolve? Because, you know, we had all seen the second act, which is the iconic white act of Petty Pop. Uh, There is a scene in it where 24... Women come down a ramp in white tutus, repeating a flowing line called arabesque, swaying literally into it and out of it, and it's like an undulation. It's like a it's like a meditation. It goes on for easily for about four minutes until you know it starts with one girl and leading the line, and they just keep filtering in and filling the stage up, and it's magical. And it's completely built on the precision and purity of classical line, but you know. It's the white act it's it's the it's the one that, that you are willing to it's the one that happens in heaven it's the one you know you have to suspend disbelief well you know all the guts and the, the real you know carnal stuff is in act 1 and <laughs> you know, and the majesty of act 3 in a palace of you know a wedding that's being forced on a on a you know the story is incredible you know it's it is a story of betrayal but no one is really guilty of anything you know these two people love one another and then you know one is actually not really Allowed to love someone because she's, you know, she's given fealty to the church, and the warrior is so good that he gets married off to the to the rajah's daughter. The rajah's daughter, what does she know? She's like pampered and and you know very powerful, and she's getting the handsome guy. But she understands something's something's awry, and then when she realizes that her father wants this. Simple temple dancer killed, she's she's going,, oh, I better. He's, she's got something to do with my man, so I'm gonna like, I'm gonna save her. I'm gonna give her some money and tell her to get the hell out of Dodge. And then she reveals to her, oh no, 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 he's sworn over the sacred fires, his love eternally to me. Well, now she's got a problem. Um, <laughs> uh, and what I love about the story is it's never really clear if it was her or her father that arranges for a poisonous snake in a bouquet of flowers to be given to uh, uh, the temple dancer to get rid of her. And they bring her into the marriage ceremony to dance for their celebration, and she's bitten by that snake and dies. This is not a good day for any of the characters. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's really, it's riveting, you know? And and people go, oh, ballet, it's all, you know. But it's riveting. It's it's remarkable.
0: Well, and then Solara goes off and has too much...
1: He, in his complete disbelief of his situation and grief, uh, uh, goes to his tent and smokes so much opium that uh, he, he, he literally has an out-of-body experience, and he goes to heaven and visits Nikia. When he recovers and comes back to himself, he's got to go to the temple to get married. And he's, he, it's just the most tense scene where, you know, Gamzadi dances for him, it's, it's full of want and need to make it better. You know, she wants him to love her, but she wants to comfort him. And he's, he just doesn't know what to do with himself. And um, when finally they are forced to say, I do, when, when Solar goes, I do, <laughs> Nikia brings the temple down and destroys the entire place and comes down and collects him and takes him yeah. to heaven.
0: It's interesting to me with the... There's actually two principal women, two leads in this, and they are stylistically very different. Very
1: different, different. yeah.
0: And I think that there's a lot of emphasis on Nikia, but I think Gamzadi, she has a lot of dancing.
1: She has a lot of dancing, and it's actually a more interesting character. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's there's more meat to develop as a character, because uh, in a funny way, Nikia is... She's kind of straightforward and pure.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, she she has a passion for what she does, and she has a passion for her man, and she has a dilemma. And in the White Act, she's a symbol of purity, whereas Gamzati is completely human. Um, she's She has every reason to feel that she should deserve this wonderful arranged marriage. But then when something, you know, my perfect day has been ruined— there's so many ways one can interpret it, you know, with anger, with dismay, with, you know, and and the physicality of her variations are so different Mm -hmm. uh, by the nature of her character. She's strong and in in control. um, But then in the third act, she has such a very different stylistic variation that's so vulnerable and um, elongated and um, melancholic. While, you know, behind a facade of... you know, regal strength, you know, it's, it's, it's a very meaty role.
0: Well, I, you know, as I said, I, it's my favorite full length. So um, we're so thrilled that it's here. When you think about what the audience should look for in La Bayadere, is there any specific tip or, you know, like when they're looking at the second act, because there's the, um, you know, when they're looking at the dancers or the variations or anything that you would suggest?
1: Well, you know, what's interesting, I think, to note is that there's a very big classical scene uh, announcing the wedding of of Gamzati and Solar in the first act. And it's all done to waltz uh, waltz rhythms and uh, one-two rhythms. uh, And the choreography is very, very much on the music. Mm -hmm. In the second act, when we're in heaven, it's uh, the impulse of the movement is on the downbeat, not the end of the movement. Um, So it gives it a slightly different quality, um, more ethereal quality. Um, But ultimately, even though they wear tutus, um, well, actually, no, it's only Gamzatti that wears a tutu. The symbol of the tutu is a heavenly figure. Yeah, the one exception is Gamzatti, and when she finally gets dressed up for her wedding announcement, she does wear a tutu. But it's stylistically, we are 19th century. The story happens in ancient India, so there are references to Indian dancing in the in the use of the arms in the first act and in the third act, uh, and there's zero in the second because it's it's absolute pure classical ballet. Yeah.
0: yeah. Right, right. So um, this is ABT's last stop before you guys are on layoff, um, and then you're back for. The fall season. The fall in New York. season.
1: We actually have one more little. We're taking a small group of twenty dancers to the Vale Festival.
0: Oh, wonderful! Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, but this is the full company's last big stop, and. Uh, and then we get ready in September for a whole new season with two new uh, pieces of choreography. Uh, we're starting a, formalizing uh, what has been in motion for almost a year and a half uh, called the Women's Movement. Um, we have two commissions, one from Michelle Durance, uh the tap dancer, and one from Jessica Lang, uh, a wonderful crossover, both ballet and modern choreographer, mm-hmm. and of course, Twyla Tharp mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Lauren Lovett from New York City Ballet.
0: Which is great. Yeah. Which is great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. You know, I can't wait for the show, and best of luck to everyone.
1: Thank you so much. It's great to be here.
0: And thank you for listening to the Music Center's podcast series, Offstage and Unbound. For more information about our dance series, Gloria Coffin Presents Dance at the Music Center, please visit our website at musiccenter.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to our podcast series on iTunes. Until next time, I'm Rachel Moore.